Welcome to the podcast. It started out as a contentious but hardly unusual labor dispute. National Grid and two of its steelworker unions failed to agree on a new contract in late June. So the company locked the 1,250 workers out and distributed their workload to management employees and contractors. The unions grumbled that the company was jeopardizing public safety, but few paid much attention until September, when a series of explosions and fires rocked the Merrimack Valley. Preliminary indications are that the pipeline system there, owned and operated by Columbia Gas, became overpressurized during the replacement of some pipe. That incident in the Merrimack Valley became a national story, and the contract fight between National Grid and its unions has gotten caught up in its wake. The labor fight intensified this month when an overpressurization incident occurred in National Grid's own service territory. Even though the problem was corrected without incident, the labor fight between National Grid and its locked-out steelworkers has morphed into something much bigger. Politicians of all stripes have jumped into the battle, largely on the side of the unions, and natural gas, once viewed as the clean fuel perfect for cooking food and heating homes, has been cast as a dangerous, polluting fossil fuel. With us today to talk about the situation is Marcy Reed, Massachusetts President and Executive Vice President for U.S. Policy and Social Impact at National Grid. Marcy, welcome. Thanks, Bruce. Good to be here. First off, let's start off, why did you lock out these workers? Sure, happy to talk about that, and thanks for having me here. It's, uh, it's a good topic to um, have a conversation around, so thank you very much. Uh, as you mentioned, at the end of June, June 24th, our contract expired with uh, two steelworker locals, 12003, 12.0204. Uh, the lockout began on that morning of the 25th, after the steelworkers' uh, contract expired prior, prior to us reaching an agreement. We're now four months into the lockout, uh, over four months, and uh, we have our gas work continuation happening. As you mentioned, we have uh, management folks on the ground. And um, so we get to why did we lock them out. Some will forget four months ago that the unions actually voted to strike prior to the 24th of June, and the week leading up to the conclusion, they voted to strike, uh, and that vo- and that vote was was passed. The decision, therefore, to lock out our employees was probably I've said this publicly in the past, one of the most difficult decisions that that I, as part of the management team, uh, have made in my 30 years at National Grid. Uh, but yet, it was one we felt and continue to feel. Uh, we needed to make in order to maintain the safety and reliability of the gas system in the 85 communities that these two union locals uh, serve, and also to make progress on the areas that we hadn't yet been able to make over the last two-plus years, specifically pensions for new hires, and we can talk about that later if you want. So uh, to be clear, none of this is about the short term. It's not about... um, right now or this summer or this fall or this winter. Ultimately, the reason we locked out our our unions was that uh, we have a commitment to uh, our customers and what we charge them in a regulated environment in our rate making, uh, the costs that we are charging our customers for the traditional defined benefit um, and 
and rather generous health care costs that we are uh, paying for these two particular unions is more than any other utility in the Northeast. And so specifically, uh, these 1,250 colleagues of ours in the steelworker unions are a portion of the 10,000 union workers we have across National Grid. And we have almost two companies right now. We have National Grid for the, for the IBW, the UWA, the management people, transport workers, et cetera. All of those groups uh, have the benefit package that we've been discussing with the utility um, with the with the steelworkers for the last two plus years, their their decision to not have productive conversations with us leading up to uh, the contract uh, termination date meant that um, you know in, in some way have to have a company that would be just called National Grid for the steelworkers, and I'm not going to do that for our customers, nor am I going to do that for all of the rest of our employees. Every other uh, group that we, with whom we do business uh, and who we employ in National Grid has taken on the generous 401k that we're offering for new employees, has, has accepted the health care changes uh, that we're offering in exchange for other work practice changes. The steelworkers haven't been willing to have that conversation with us uh, starting all the way back in 2016 when we first discussed it with them all the way through till now. And, and you said a little, bit, a little bit ago, I think, that you lock, did the lockout Difficult decision, but heavily because you were concerned about the safety of the system. That conjures up in my mind that you were worried that what, – what, what were you worried about? Well, I think there are three things that happen at the end of a contract uh, date. Uh, if, you d- if the two parties don't reach agreement, three things can happen. The first is the union could, sh- could strike, and as I mentioned, they, they voted to do that. Mm-hmm. That vote passed. The second thing you could do is uh, is continue to negotiate uh, under the current contract or, in fact, let the contract lapse but continue to c- negotiate anyway and let the folks continue to work. There are two reasons why we chose not to do that this time. The first was uh, in 2016 when the last contract ended with these particular locals, we did extend it multiple times and, and ultimately um, withdrew our um, our positions of health care and new pe- and pensions for the new hires, and it got us it got us nowhere. That it didn't you know ha- letting the folks work while uh, the contract was go- going on um, didn't result in any meaningful conversation. They never once have made a um, counter proposal to us, so we didn't feel that it would result in a in any productive conversations, and again, because we're so worried about the uh, the cost that we're passing on to our customers, uh, we didn't think that that would be, be productive. The third reason, the third uh, option upon a contract ending is that you you could lock out your employees, uh, and that's ultimately why that was dis- that was tough. So mm-hmm. we didn't, they didn't choose to strike, so that option was off the table. Two, uh, we had already tried negotiating. Um, with the contract just continuing to uh, play itself out, and that didn't work. So three, the ultimate, um, the last decision was to lock them out. So what makes this fascinating is that it's sort of morphed into something far beyond just what you've outlined. It's it's now become about um, gas safety and and um, 
you've been sort of lumped in with what happened in the Merrimack Valley, fairly or unfairly. And um, politicians are jumping in, as I said, and you guys are running ads in the newspaper to try and get your point of view out. It, both sides are seem to be playing for keeps here. How do you see? How do you see your way out of this? Right, and there and there is a way out. This lockout will end, um, and I think we both sides do agree with that. So let me first say a couple things, and then I'll answer your question. Um, the events that happened in September in the Columbia Gas Service Territory were truly unfortunate. Um, and they did bring up the, uh, the topic of gas to people who just don't think about it every day. Let's face it, our assets are buried under the ground, you know, except for the meter on your house or, or the flame that you see on your stove. Uh, people don't really think about their gas. So all of a sudden they were thinking about it. And then, um, and so the, the whole topic of gas safety, some of the actions that the, the DPU, the Department of Public Utilities, uh, the, the AG uh, took after that time, again, brought the topic to bear. What is, the, what is the safety of gas? Oh, my goodness, is this something we should be worried about? And these are the questions that the average citizen out there is asking. Uh, the gas network is safe. The gas network is safe. Uh, the event that took place in the Merrimack Valley, the Columbia Gas and the NTSB will report out on it. I'm not here to discuss that right now. Um, but it does, you know, it has raised um, questions that, pe that we're grappling with as um, a, a set of regulated entities here in Massachusetts, as well as I think more broadly across the nation. Um, the, the topic of gas and gas safety will continue to be discussed. It has been discussed over the last number of years when other similar incidents that are very rare yet have taken place. So, uh, yes, I think that the elected officials in the in the area have uh, been under some pressure to to look at this on behalf of their constituents, on behalf of our customers, and we welcome that. You know, I welcome the dialogue around how can we best make uh, all of our processes as safe as they can be? How can we ensure that the inspectors who stand by the side of the hole to uh, confirm that the work that either a company crew or, an in, or a contractor crew is doing is exactly by the book. Um, and those are the conversations I would just love to be able to have with the union. Uh, to date, they haven't uh, um, wanted to have overly productive conversations. I will say, having said that, the last two conversations we had with the unions, uh, I think we both felt we're productive. We're starting to edge down that path of the right conversation to have. So to your question of how does this end, this ends by both parties uh, sitting across the table from each other productively and honestly talking about the topics that matter, which include items of safety. I was proud that last Friday on the 19th uh, we did put new items on the table that that are directly in uh, response to the union's claim uh, that we're not talking about safety. So we did. We put new items out on the table to address that, and I'm proud that we did that. I'm hopeful that those will spur on even more conversations from them. But it sort of seems like, um, I mean, they're having an event just about every other, maybe every day, uh, to, in front of the DPU. Today it was in front of the State House. It's going to be at the British consulate because you're owned by a British company. Um, it seems like they're sensing that 
you know, they can negotiate the table, but they can also leverage political pressure on you to, to buckle. Um, they've, they've got the DPU saying you can't do any more. It sounds like anything but emergency work. Um, they're pushing legislation on Beacon Hill that would restrict, force you to extend health insurance to the workers and cut off payments. A lot of political pressure from pretty powerful people is is being pushed on the company. How long can you hold out? Uh, well, I, I certainly see the, um, the tactics that the union is utilizing to push their case. Uh, if I were them, I might do the same thing. We've said from the beginning, and I will hold true to this um, till the end, this deal is going to be done at the negotiating table. It's not one which we will choose to play out in the public venue. Uh, it's why uh, we told our team from the beginning, uh, buckle down, we're going to take some hits in the media. Uh, frankly, I was surprised it took as long as it did for us to start taking hits in the media. Um, and I think that uh, that's probably uh, the respect that the unions have for the workforce we have out there who they know are doing a really difficult job uh, that at one point I want the union to come back and start doing. So, um, you know, we're dealing... Uh, with all the different venues you've mentioned, various elected officials, various regulatory and other um, bodies who have a say or want to have a say in this. Uh, we're doing everything we can to answer the many questions that they've put forth to us, and I think we've done those on a rather um, expedited basis. I, um, sitting here right now, I'm not aware of any open questions that um, are due that we haven't answered yet. We've got a lot that we've got on the table that we're working on. Um, I'm confident that our response to all those queries uh, will lead the parties who are asking to say, no, okay, I, I get that. Here's the answer to, um, you know, how many leaks have been repaired over the last three months. Here's the answer to um, what happened with those 29 uh, instances or leaks. You know, I'm, we've answered all these questions, and our, and our job is to make sure that the general public as well as the elected body are comfortable with the responses that we that we give, as well as the work that we're performing every darn day uh, since this started, you know, 120 some odd uh, days ago. I'll say that during that time, we've completed somewhere in the neighborhood of 34 or 35,000 jobs. Um, they have been done by uh, qualified, certified, trained, professional. Um, gas workers, who some who do this anyway, uh, working for a contractor, some who do it because they are uh, managers and supervisors of our union colleagues, and some who have joined the team in kind of a helper position. So I'm super confident in our safety record and the, um, the practices that we're employing out there. I understand that safety is never anything anyone wants to mess around with, and that's why the elected officials are putting pressure um, on yeah, us to answer these you, questions, and, and we'll carry on doing that. Do you really? I, I, I got to believe you went into this knowing you might take some knocks, yep. but you probably had no idea what was going to happen in the Merrimack Valley, that that has sort of changed the whole dynamic of the discussion. Because um, to be honest with you, you, you mentioned that most people never think about right. their gas. Uh, and it, actually, they really like to cook with gas. They like all this stuff about gas. Yeah. And suddenly they're being told, oh, you know, if they're replacing a pipe, something could really go wrong here. So I guess that had to 
you had to go, oh, my God, what's going to happen now? Well, I did ask that. Um, you know, you never want to see a neighboring utility have an accident like that. And uh, we, have, we obviously drove right up there and helped them. But that all aside, um, and, the, uh, and them getting on with the fix up there, of course we never anticipated a large operational issue like that to happen during the lockout. And, uh, but I'll say this. We have responded to everything that's happened because of it. Uh, I, I am super proud of the team that's doing that. Uh, we as a company, whether it's our management employees, our union employees, our contractors, across the board, we as a company always rise to the challenge that's been faced and put in front of us, whether it's an electric storm, a gas incident uh, in our operations, or as we've proven over the last four months, this uh, we've we've it has impacted the way we are working in the company, uh, some for the better, some for the worse. And uh, yet I can't I can't underscore enough, Bruce, how much we are just getting the job done. So, no, I never anticipated it. I was a little, um, you know, worried and troubled when it happened. And uh, but we're going to keep carrying on. It's I come back to where I started. And that is that. These two unions are, are asking for um, a set of tr- traditional, I'll, I'll use the word, um, old-fashioned uh, benefit plans that most of America doesn't have. Certainly no one else in National Grid has. And in fact, the steelworkers themselves have accepted, uh, they have negotiated and accepted these benefits and even less with every other utility in New England. So for me, it comes back to why are we even having this conversation? Uh, the steelworkers have accepted these benefits with every other utility with, uh, with whom they work in Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Hampshire. Why National Grid? Why are we different? Why now? I don't get that. And so uh, once we can get back to the table, have the productive conversations I've talked about, even with all the political pressure going on in the background, uh, for me, we're very focused on on getting it, getting back to the table, and that's where we're going to fight this battle, at, you know, civilly, productively, and respectfully with our colleagues, not in the media. Um, one thing the union officials are fond of saying that you're a British company and you have whopping profits of yeah. I think it's four point five billion dollars is what they say their number changes a bit yeah um is that is that they they think you got all the money in the world why i think they do and you know i'm not going to try to get into their heads but it is possible that the way you just described us is really what bothers them um i'd like to tell them what something that they already know and um and i wish they'd play this externally in all of their narrative but uh we yes we are uh, owned by a British entity. Uh, we are run by the same Americans who have been here for decades. I've been here for 30 years. I have multiple colleagues who have been here for 30 years, both in the union and management. Uh, we are run here out of Waltham, Massachusetts. That's where I sit. That's where my CEO boss sits. Uh, the entire executive team is here. Being British uh, listed on the New York, the London Stock Exchange has nothing to do with how we run this company. And yes, we were fortunate enough last year to have um, a profit. We are a large company, uh, so, our, so the numbers uh, to some are eye-watering, and they point that out. However, in a regulated utility, electric or gas, 
the way it works is you add up the costs that you spend on people, trucks, computers, healthcare, et cetera. You pass it on to your customers. That's how it works. And I refuse to do that at a level that is not sustainable for the customers that we have. No other customers in New England are paying the level of cost for these benefits that we're forcing our customers to pay for. So it has nothing to do with, the, with what the company outside the regulated, regulated entity made. This is about um, you know, getting our cost to our customers more sustainable. So last question is sort of step back in a, in a bigger picture. Um, the Boston Globe had a story a week or so ago. They led the paper with it about, oh, my God, natural gas is a danger. And environmental advocates were suddenly saying, we really need to get off this as fast as we can because it fed into an agenda that they are pursuing as well. Um, and it felt like, uh, just like you've been sucked up in the Merrimack Valley incident, so has a lot of the public debate about what fuels should we be using in New England and um, the safety of gas and all that. Tell me a little bit. Of, I, I, I don't remember. You hear the occasional story every now and then about a, an explosion in a house. I've never heard of what happened up in the Merrimack Valley before, but maybe it does happen more often than I know. But um, is this like the freakish thing of you're, you're more likely to die in an airplane or no, be hit by a lightning bolt and die in an airplane crash or something like that? I, I probably got my analogies wrong, but what is this doing? What, what, does it raise some concerns about you about gas and the public's image of it? Uh, it doesn't to me, but then that's easy to say. I run a utility. Um, I think that what we owe the, the general public out there is the right narrative around what happened, why it happened, uh, how could it happen, but also to your point around what's the future of gas, uh, both as a product and also as it addresses the very important topic of climate change. So um, I'll address the first point first. Um, top, things like what happened in the Merrimack Valley or in San Bruno or in East Harlem or in Pennsylvania do happen. I just listed off four that happened over a number of years. They're, uh, they're rare, but uh, accidents have been known to occur. So that's one thing. Uh, the, um, the rules of the, of the national gas uh, industry are evolving every day. And in fact, National Grid will ultimately be one of the very first utilities in the country which will adopt a standard called API 1173. Well, let's uh, not go too far Let's not that. go too far there, but I'll <laughs> simply say this. I put it out there for people who know what it is. It is the reaction to, um, to instances where accidents can occur and making sure that the operating procedures across America for how we deal with the safety of gas um, are in effect. And so... We have a culture of safety around National Grid. We start every meeting with a safety message. It, you know, we live and breathe it, and so we are eagerly adopting the uh, standards under API 1173. That's why I say that. Uh, more broadly, though, stepping back, let's talk about um, climate for just a minute here. Uh, National Grid, in June uh, earlier this year, launched a white paper called uh, Northeast 80 by 50 Pathway. And it's how we plan as an organization to reduce our uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 80% by 2050. 
And it has all sorts of uh, strategies in there, including uh, the electrification of transportation. What can we do with electric vehicles? How can we help society move off of their internal combustion engines to electric vehicles? And there's all sorts of stats about how aggressive we need to be as a, as a body on that in the next decade even. There's one around electrification of heat. Um, should, should we just switch everyone to, um, uh, to electric heat, put them on heat pumps like that, or should we also utilize uh, trans, tr um, converting some homes that are currently heating with oil, convert those to gas? The answer is a little bit of both. We're not going to go into the study here, but I would encourage folks to look it up. Uh, another is around the future of gas. What, uh, how should it play into um, electric generation? Right now, about half, as you know, of our generating fleet around New England is fueled by natural gas. Um, how could we start to reduce that to uh, utilize even more large-scale renewables in the form of offshore wind, onshore wind, solar, et cetera? So the, sh the short answer is that gas plays a role in helping us as a society get to 80 by 50. It saddens me to think that the, um, that, that the general public would take an incident such as the Merrimack Valley and say, oh, my goodness, therefore, <clears throat> therefore we should just turn off all the gas. Uh, we would actually go backwards from an environmental perspective very, very quickly, only because the technologies that are needed to ultimately be at 2050 just aren't there yet. We're getting there. We're making some good progress in vehicles and large-scale renewables. Uh, but we're not there yet, and getting off of gas right now would be detrimental to the environmental community. Marcy Reed, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And to our listeners, we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you.